You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered. Listener-supported. Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Abe Shapiro. This is the WFHB Local News for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. Later in the program, WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Joel Furman, best-selling author and renowned physician specializing in preventative nutrition and natural healing on his popular book, Fast Food Genocide. More in today's feature report. Also coming up in the next half hour, the latest installment of Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production between WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fun. But first, your local headlines. On December 14th, at the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting, Health Department Representative Lori Kelly gave an update on flu cases and vaccines. Uh, Good morning, Commissioners. Just a few updates. We are seeing high levels of flu cases across the county and the state at this time. As a reminder, the Public Health Clinic has flu shots and all vaccines available. You can call 812-353-3244 for an appointment. We have seen a small increase in COVID cases compared to last week. Um, Averages are around 11 cases um, increased per day. And the FDA has authorized emergency use of the bivalent booster for ages six months to five years for Moderna and six months to four years for Pfizer. The public health clinic should be receiving orders of this later this week. Next, the commissioners heard from County Attorney Jeff Cockrell on an ordinance to end the county's Affordable Housing Commission. Commissioner Julie Thomas explained that the reason for this is not that it is not needed, but rather they are trying to better support local organizations, addressing the issue by consolidating the number of players involved. The commissioners approved the ordinance unanimously. Next, Cockrell presented an agreement with the Indiana University Board of Trustees that allows the Indiana Institute on Disabilities and Community to implement a survey regarding current and former people incarcerated at the jail. Yes, we we discussed this in detail at last week's work session where it was approved. Um, As that conversation occurred, uh, the approval was subject to a a few things which have been added to the document. Um, One is contingent upon a approval of appropriation by the county council um, and acceptance by the Monroe County Sheriff and the Monroe County Board of Judges, as well as uh, this this program is to give surveys to people who are in or have been in our um, correctional facility. So those surveys questions are subject to review and approval by the sheriff to make sure everybody's understanding what's going on. Greater Bloomington Chamber of Commerce Chair Christopher Emge spoke in support of the ordinance saying the data will help the community and the commissioners make more informed decisions. Good morning, commissioners, distinguished staff. This is Christopher Emge from the Greater Bloomington Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. Today, I stand uh, before you as the voice of business community in support of the American Rescue Plan Act Fund number 8950. We have been a strong advocate of the Community Justice Reform Commission's efforts 
our last month's luncheon on this topic has been the most discussed community conversation we have had in my five years at the chamber. For this commission to make the necessary recommendations, these are the type of investments that will be imperative to have the improvements that best optimize the system. The current reform debate has often been dominated by the prospect of a new facility where it's located and to a lesser extent, the programs uh, revolving around mental illness and addiction, all hugely important, but the dialogue can veer toward the negative, can be a bit cantankerous with an ideal in search of the tangible. Where I have appreciated Commissioner Jones' leadership is the need for more and better data. This is something I believe we can reach a consensus on. Creating a dashboard with real-time figures, outcome measures, and benchmarks will go a long way to proving our system across the board. Crucial contract renewals come before this body. As an administrator to the county government, your informed decision is vital, but you're only as good as the information that is before you. These are advancements that can and should be made in the short run to improve our justice system. The silos that prohibit us can come down. We begin speaking the same language from a common center. This survey is a vehicle for such a discussion. On a personal, as a former Arizona evaluator on the federal government's No Child Left Behind reading program, our team was tasked to figure out why some schools were successful in implementing this and why others were not. Much to my surprise, it was not leadership. It was not collaboration or even teacher buy-in. But the key factor was the use of data. Grade level meetings took on a different form of collaboration with this sort of understanding. The principal could provide tangible feedback. It was not used an evaluation tool, but rather to learn and make progress. I thank you all for your time today and happy holidays. The commissioners unanimously approved the survey. The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on January 4th. At the December 14th meeting of the Bloomington City Council, Attorney Stephen Lucas explained a resolution 22-20, which would create a capital improvement board to operate the Monroe Convention Center expansion project. Most recently, um, folks from the city and county have been meeting to uh, figure out what sort of entity will oversee the operations and, and the, uh, the expansion project itself. Uh, the city administration has expressed support for a 501c3 nonprofit entity. Uh, both the county commissioners and the county council now have expressed support for a, uh, a capital improvement board, which is an, en an entity provided for in state law uh, that, that many other communities use to manage their convention centers. Uh, and so this resolution tonight uh, gives the council an opportunity to weigh in on this question. Um, uh, it, it expresses support for the creation of a capital improvement board. Uh, and encourages the city administration to continue working with uh, folks in the county uh, to uh, address any uh, remaining questions uh, left open after the Commissioner's Ordinance 2022-46 uh, was adopted. Director of Public Engagement Mary Catherine Carmichael said the Office of the Mayor would prefer to place the convention centers as a 501c nonprofit rather than take the Capital Improvement Board route. The issue in question is simply uh, what form uh, of organization are, is it going to take to, to get that done most effectively. And um, it's after literally six years of study and talk, um, we've come to the conclusion that our preference would certainly be and strongly be a 501c3, but we understand too that um, well-intentioned people can have different opinions and that's okay. So happy to be with you this evening to further discuss this. Thank you. Monroe County Attorney Jeff Cockrell stated the county's preference for a Capital Improvement Board, or CIB, 
explaining that the mayor's office switched positions after the convention center plans were placed on hold during the pandemic. Some of us in this room have been part of this conversation of a convention center and uh, how it moves on and moves forward since, I, I think, the beginning. Um, I think I was not here in the beginning, but there are members of the audience. But I was really involved in the negotiations that were going on uh, right before COVID hit and everything got put on hold. And uh, at that point in time, we were talking about a CIB. And so I, I see this this motion and what the, what the commissioners did is just kind of trying to continue from where we left off in 2019, 2000, beginning of 2020. Monroe County Commissioner Julie Thomas expressed interest in moving forward with the CIB, saying the commissioners thought the city and county were previously in agreement taking this path forward. We were talking about a CIB, then COVID happened. And then when we came back to talk about the convention center again, the administration brought forward this 501c3 idea. A 501c3, unlike a capital improvement board, does not require a public approval, uh, public board, elected board approving budgets. It does not require public meetings. There are issues, there are other issues as well. Um, We, put forward our resolution to clearly state we prefer going on the track of negotiating, because there's still more negotiation, negotiating the CIB. Uh, We asked our colleagues on the county council, they agreed. Um, We've we've heard from the administration, obviously they prefer a 501c3. Our question to you is, do you prefer that we negotiate on the uh, CIB track or the 501c3 track, not both, one or the other. We would like to know where the city's common council stands on this pivotal issue about which are we, which path are we following? They're very different paths. They're not the same. Thank you. The resolution to support a capital improvement board passed by an eight to one vote with council member Kate Rosenbarger voting no. The next Bloomington City Council meeting has been scheduled for December 21st. You've been listening to an interview between WFHB correspondent Zero Rose and Dr. Joel Furman on his book, Fast Food Genocide on the WFHB Local News. You can find and listen to all WFHB news reports online at WFHB.org. Now back to the second half of the interview. We are honored today to have Dr. Joel Furman join us in this episode, Fast Food Genocide, The Resistance Lives. We will discuss the effects of the standard American diet on personal and planetary health, But first, we'd like to give you a little background on our esteemed guest. Dr. Joel Furman is a board-certified family physician, a seven-time New York Times bestselling author, an internationally recognized expert on nutrition and natural healing, specializing in preventing and reversing disease through nutritional methods. Dr. Furman is the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation, is on the faculty of Northern Arizona University's Health Sciences Division. He coined the term nutritarian to describe a nutrient-dense eating style designed to prevent cancer, to slow aging, and extend lifespan. As a native of Yonkers, New York, Dr. Furman is a world-class 
a former world-class figure skater who has advised uh, professional and Olympic athletes, sports medical committees, and athletic trainers about maximizing performance and preventing injury. He has appeared on radio and television and may be best known for his PBS specials, which have raised over $50 million for public television. Among his New York Times bestsellers are the books, The End of Heart Disease, The End of Diabetes, and Super Immunity, Eat for Life is what was published in 2020. We will here focus a bit on his 2018 book, Fast Food Genocide with Research and Contributions by Robert B. Phillips. Dr. Furman has also collaborated on a number of articles for medical journals, including Open Journal of Preventative Medicine and Alternative Therapies in Health and Medicine. And I believe you are joining us now from San Diego. Is that right, Dr. Furman? That's right. I live here now. You do live there now. And that's where he operates the Eat to Live Retreat, a residential facility where people from around the world come to stay for four to 12 weeks to recover from a range of conditions like cardiovascular disease, autoimmune disease, and food addiction. So uh, thank you for taking time to speak with us today, Dr. Furman. My pleasure. Looking forward to it. Now, uh, before we get into some of the grim statistics and the ways that our audience can empower themselves to evade the traps that are sort of set for us out here in the foodscape, could you uh, tell us how you uh, got into medicine and this nutritional focus, kind of the beginnings of your journey? I went to medical school with the specific intent to be a physician specializing in nutrition. So I, I kind of had a passion for this type of career before I started going to medical school. But before that, I was on the world team in figure skating. And then I worked in my father's shoe business, who had a chain of 12 shoe stores in the New York area. And, I, and, um, and my father was overweight and sickly. And he started reading books, um, natural hygiene books by Herbert Shelton, and tried to lose weight and eat healthier and get his health in better shape. So I read the books with him and started researching and reading about nutrition and, re and staying well when I was a teenager, which I think aided me and um, aided us, myself, my sister and I as a pair team skating for the United States, not getting sick and increasing, you know, and just never getting ill and never getting cold, you know, so we watched our diet when we were competing. But I really, my exposure to that early um, world made me learn that cancers don't have to happen and that you don't have to have asthma and rheumatoid arthritis and colitis and, and headaches and and diabetes and blood pressure, these diseases that afflict Americans are the diseases of nutritional ignorance. And it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science taught in grade school, because nutrition is the most powerful um, factor affecting our health and happiness throughout our whole life. And right now, not only are we, not only this book, Fast Food Genocide, describing the increase in depression and anger and frustration and mental illness and the growth of um, or, you know, dysthymia, which means people have no excitement about living and passions anymore. There, it's ruining that nutrition is ruining not just the body, but their brains. And how many people you know who've had a, a cancer diagnosis or a heart attack or a stroke? It's our whole population dies of these diseases that are no, that are don't have to have happen. So what I'm saying right now is that we have this unprecedented opportunity in human history where we have these foundational studies in nutritional science of the last decade. And I've reviewed about 30,000 of those studies, 30,000 studies to come to the realization that 
we have the information to win the war on cancer, heart attacks, strokes, and dementia right now. And it's on our plates. It's what we put in our mouth predominantly. And so the opportunity is people can control their health destiny and live longer. But with the excitement and passion about this knowledge, I decided to, for my father to sell the shoe business so he could retire. And I went back to the postgraduate pre-med program at Columbia and then to the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine to pursue a career as a physician specializing in nutrition. I did not get that training though in medical school. I had to get a conventional medical training and then, and then pursue my own research and training um, to be to specializing in this field in addition to my specialty in, in family practice. So I combined this nutritional bent with like treating sprained ankles and suturing people's wounds and taking out, um, you know, removing skin lesions. And, you know, so I, 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 I did everything as a family physician, but I also, of course, my major bent was that people would come to me from all over wanting to get well. And I would use nutrition, excellent nutrition with the right type of supplements and the right type of interventions to have them get rid of their asthma, not treat the rest of their life with a drug, get rid of their headaches. They don't have to be on drugs, reverse their diabetes. So they can be non-diabetic, not go for bypass surgery or angioplasty, but melt away the heart disease and have them be breathing again and throw away their blood pressure drugs and their statins and get off their medications and get the blood pressure back to normal again. So the excitement about my career and my end was, came to fruition because I'm tremendously passionate and, and excited about watching people reverse disease and get well. And do you think there's been any improvement since, since your days in medical school on uh, the training on nutrition with doctors or still pretty much the same situation or only just beginning to really uh, include it at a level that it should be? Well, I could, let me address that in three different ways. Number one, I don't care that much personally that doctors know nutrition because that's like saying to a person, when you have lung cancer, the doctor should tell you to quit smoking. Well, the, or when you go to a doctor and you have heart disease, he, can, he should get you off the salt in your diet. No, you should not never smoke to begin with. You shouldn't quit smoking after you go to a doctor and get lung cancer. The time you go to a doctor with a disease, who cares that he knows about nutrition? You've been eating wrong for 30 years. You should never develop that disease. You shouldn't have been salting your food at the beginning when you was a child through your whole life. You shouldn't have been smoking your whole life. You shouldn't have been eating an American diet your whole life. Why wait to a doctor till you have advanced heart disease or early stage cancer or some serious autoimmune condition for them to tell you to intercede with a nutritional intervention? So I'm kind of um, advocating that it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science. And we have to have nutritional science education taught throughout the school, the educational process, and not be the isolated um, knowledge base of physicians who just are glorified pharmacists who mostly either do surgeries or write drugs for people. Um, and they don't care about nutrition because they're just giving, because that takes too long. And their, their, their practices aren't designed to spend time teaching and educating people. They just want to have people run through the, the, the door. No. On the other hand, yeah. as a founding member of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, I've, with, where we'd have a convention of 20 or 30 people, and now these conventions have tens of thousands of people, and there are thousands of doctors across the United States now that are even not only members of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, but are board certified who use nutrition and other lifestyle modalities as a primary intervention in their medical practice. So there's a, yes, there's an explosion of doctors doing this now, but it's still less than 1% of physicians. It's still a very small percent. I'm talking about, you know, 
you know, 10 or 15,000 physicians, which is a small drop in the bucket, you know. And so, so what, and the third thing, of course, is I'm saying that we have to integrate what we've learned and advocate for the population at all stages of the population. PTA groups, adult education, media, government, politics, educational system, medical office, you know, doctor's education. It should be, it, it, it's not just the, the information should be in the, under the hands of physicians who get, make their money on people being sick, which predominantly have a sick care system, which is treating diseases without getting people well. My type of practice gets people well so they don't need medical care anymore. When they come, even if, they, even if they're a food addict and they have like advanced heart disease and diabetes and they're 100 pounds overweight, they come to my, if they come here to my, in San Diego and they spend a few months and lose 50 pounds, they go home with the knowledge how to continue to lose weight. They're no longer diabetic, no longer have high blood pressure, and they don't really need doctoring anymore or drugs anymore. They're free from the need of medical care. I'm trying to have people not be medically dependent so they don't need doctors to teach them because generally speaking, I'm saying physicians don't know much more about healthcare than the average truck driver, librarian, and postman does, and plumber. You might as well just ask your plumber about nutrition, you'll get the same just as much because they're getting their information from the media. They really haven't studied it and they're not experts in it. And if they became experts in it, it wouldn't change that much because we have to have everybody be an expert, not just the doctors. Well, if it's still only about 1% of doctors, you can imagine what a smaller percentage that is as far as the average population. Uh, and if they got it in school, elementary school and all the way up, it would be more embedded in their, their practice or their way of thinking about medicine before they ever got to graduate school. Absolutely. And I'm not, I'm not sure the 1% figure, by the way, I just threw that out there. I, it's probably maybe more like 100,000, like point, more realistically, 15,000 doctors out of the whole mass of doctors in America. I don't know. It's probably more like a one you know, 0.1% or a one thousandths of all doctors was probably more accurate, but I don't know that figure. Just don't hold me to that number. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, in the, uh, you know, the older Chinese and uh, Ayurvedic Indian systems mm. and kind of in the, uh, the quotes of Hippocrates, but let thy food be thy medicine. It was more an intrinsic uh, component of whatever you would call it, some kind of a consultancy, if not medical in intervention as we think of it or practice it today, just a way of setting people back into balance. Because even before industrialized food systems and all that we had, people would get out of balance. You have people that have certain allergies, food allergies and different things, and you'd have to narrow that down on what's affecting their system. So it seems like it should definitely be an intrinsic kind of first stage of when somebody's ailing, you survey, what are you eating? What's your lifestyle? Oh, absolutely. Lifestyle medicine is the foundation of correct medical care. Any doctor that doesn't practice lifestyle medicine doesn't have the right tools in their tools box and probably shouldn't even take care of patients. I think medical care is, has actually evolved into being more harmful. Overall, it's harmful. Because well, the first thing you learn in medical school and pharmacology is drugs are toxic and their cumulative effect is to increase the risk of cancer. And the second thing is, is doctors, by giving people medications instead of changing the factors in their lives that are causing disease, enable people to continue to on their addictive and self-destructive habits. They, so the person that's going to fast food restaurants and eating steak and French fries or whatever they're eating that's creating their disease, 
they go to their doctor with diabetes and heart disease and high blood pressure and the doctor gives them pills. And what do the pills do? They allow them to think they're okay because now their blood pressure looks normal or their blood cholesterol looks normal. And they think they're okay. They're getting a false degree of assurance because they're still deteriorating at a rapid rate if they continue the same diet they're on. So the doctor enabled them to stay on the same pathway of self-destructive eating behavior leading to a premature death and has almost a, a, almost a not only a, a worthless effect on extending lifespan, but a negative effect because we never had any medications to give people then the doctor would be forced to say, you got to drop 30 pounds. You have to you know, stop salting your food, stop eating fried foods, eat mostly fruits and vegetables, have a salad, a vegetable bean soup for lunch, go, go walk for an hour after dinner. And let's see, you come back next week, you know, a few pounds lighter without the salt and frying fats in your diet. And let's see if we can get you getting well. So even before that insulin was invented, um, type two diabetics were forced to you know, exercise and change their diet to get well. Now we give them drugs that make them gain weight and become more diabetic. So it's all, so the, the whole, if you put it all in a big pot, you'd realize the effect of medical care is not that, it has not been extending lifespan. It's been perhaps um, interfering with the ability of humans to live a long, happy life because we, we're, we're, it's make, takes the emphasis on off, um, self-care as the primary focus of healthcare, self-care. WFHB correspondent Zero Rose speaks with Dr. Joel Furman, best-selling author and renowned physician, specializing in preventative nutrition and natural healing on his popular book, Fast Food Genocide. We turn now to that interview. Welcome to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a weekly co-production from WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We highlight adoptable animals with special needs in South Central Indiana and spotlight topics to promote human animal welfare. First, here is today's featured animal. This week's featured pet is Kitty Kitty Meow Meow, a beautiful orange tabby cat currently staying at the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. Kitty Kitty Meow Meow is just over eight years old. She is incredibly sweet and loves to be petted. Kitty Kitty Meow Meow is blind and mostly deaf. She really just needs a couch to cuddle up on and a person to love. Shelter staff and a veterinarian can help advise on how to care for a cat with sensory deficits. To learn more about taking Kitty Kitty Meow Meow home, please reach out to or visit the City of Bloomington Animal Shelter. If you're interested in adopting today's featured pet, you can learn more at our websites, goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org. You're listening to Lil Bub's Lil Show, a co-production of WFHB and Lil Bub's Big Fund. We now turn to this week's featured topic. It's a common belief that pets are safe from fleas and ticks 
once the temperature drops below freezing. But unfortunately, that's a misconception. Fleas and ticks can pose threats to pets year-round. Although ticks are most active during the warmer months, some species can remain active in fall and winter months. As ticks feed on a host's blood, they can transmit a large number of diseases, such as Lyme disease, Rocky Mountain spotted fever, and bacterial infections. Flea pupae, essentially teenage fleas, have the ability to stay in tiny cocoons for extensive periods of time. Flea pupae can be nestled in your furniture or carpeting, waiting for the temperature to rise or for a host animal to become available. One adult female flea can produce up to 50 eggs per day, or about 2,000 in its lifetime. So it doesn't take much time for one flea to cause a big problem for your household pet. While fleas are largely associated with itching, they can also transmit diseases. Some animals may develop allergic reactions to flea bites involving visibly irritated skin and even fur loss. For dogs and cats, the best defense against fleas and ticks is to keep them on a year-round flea and tick preventative medication. A veterinarian can advise on recommendations for your pets. Thank you for tuning in to Lil Bub's Lil Show on WFHB, produced in partnership with Lil Bub's Big Fund. For more info on today's featured animal and topic, find us online at goodjobbub.org and wfhb.org.